Hi, this is Max Weinbach. I wanted to address something we talk about later on in this podcast. Um, we make a rather lengthy digression on the whole tone scale with regards to our talk on Phantom of the Opera. Um, I just wanted to mention that when we are talking about the whole tone scale, we really mean its use in a non-traditional, non-tonal, or tonally ambiguous way, as would have been done by impressionist composers like Claude Debussy. I didn't want to suggest that it wasn't used prior to that time. It was, of course, used before that, an example being Mozart's uh, musical joke. Even Bach used it. And a lot of the Russian composers that predated uh, Debussy, or right before Debussy, that Debussy was really influenced by, had used it. But I would say... Starting in the late 1800s, it was starting to be used in a more, as I said, tonally ambiguous way, uh, in a very conspicuous way, too, and it became more commonplace. That, I feel, is the way it's been being used in Phantom of the Opera. If I'm getting any of that wrong, please comment on our podcast, and perhaps you can share with us some musical knowledge that I'm missing here. Anyway, please stay tuned for our discussion on Los Angeles Plays Itself. Welcome to another edition of Splitting Hairs with Max and Nikki. As usual, I'm Max. And I'm Nikki. And together we're Max and Nikki. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles in relation to the documentary film, Los Angeles Plays Itself. And to help us dissect this uh, fascinating topic is our good friend, Kevin Crooks. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for Definitely. coming. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, thanks for showing us this documentary. Uh, it, was an interesting it was Kevin's idea to watch this movie. It's one of my favorite movies, so I was really excited that you guys were up for watching it. Sure, yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about that movie in relation to uh, many other movies uh, that have taken place in Los Angeles or have been shot in Los Angeles. And that's a lot of movies, definitely. Um, actually, that's what the movie Los Angeles Plays Itself is kind of all about, right? Uh, in a way. Indeed, it's comprised almost exclusively of clips of other movies um, that you just uh, made from, you know, the beginning of cinema to, to pretty close to the film, which is the production of the film, which was 2003. Right. And it... Um, there are a couple shots that he inserts to illustrate other points that he's making, but it's almost exclusively clips of movies. Mm -hmm. That either LA. take place in Los Angeles or have been shot in Los Angeles. That's right. Um, specifically on location in Los Angeles. Right. Um, but before we get to that, we have a few announcements to make. Some station Some business. Station business. Uh, our next Vintage Basement uh, with Max with and Nikki show uh, will be actually happening in Los Angeles. So We're doing don't confuse our audience. The okay. normal New York version of Vintage Basement with Max and Nikki will be happening every third Monday, even including the third Monday of August, as usual. But we are bringing the show to Los Angeles for one night only in a couple weeks. Right, right. Sorry, it's going to yeah. be on uh, Thursday, August 9th at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles, California. In Los Angeles, California. And we've got a great lineup for this. Who do we got, Max? We got... Uh, we got Andrew Michon, we got DJ Doug Pound, we've got Brent Weinbach, and we've got Reggie Watts, and we've got another special guest who uh, 
we won't announce just yet, but it'll, uh, that announcement will be coming in the, in the next few days. But um, um, this, how could show they get will, this show will, okay. will be selling very well. I recommend getting your tickets ahead of time right now. Um, where can you right. get your tickets? DynastyTypewriter.com. That's probably the easiest way to get them. Um, that's D-Y-N-A-S-T-Y-T-Y-P-E-W-R-I-T-E-R.com. Or you can go to maxandnicky.com. Uh, and you'll be able that'll to, lead you to the appropriate links but dynastytypewriter.com that, that's probably the best way to, the, it's going to be a fun show way. all you Los Angeles friends and fans uh, do come out it's going to be a great show um, we also got our next edition of our New York our regular monthly New York Vintage Basement Max Nikki happening on Monday August 20th um, and that announce the lineup we are not going to quite announce yet um, but that announcement will come in the next few days as well. It's going to be a great lineup as usual. Um, as you, if you've been to any of our shows, you know that the shows sell out pretty often. So I recommend getting your tickets ahead of time. Where can you get those tickets? Maxnigga.com or horsetrade.info. Um, anyway, no, that's a lot of info. Um, uh, also, before we move on, uh, I guess something that we probably want to talk about is we, uh, uh, all three of us, this past Monday went, or actually last Tue- week, rather. Uh, Tuesday. No, Tuesday. Or this past Tuesday, we went to go see Phantom of the Opera. Max and I, this was our third time seeing it. Kevin, first It was time. my first, was first and time. I really love seeing it. And so I'm really glad you guys suggested we do this and that we did sure. it together. It was uh, a total delight. And what were your thoughts on it? Well... I liked it a lot. I thought the sets were... I'm not a huge musical guy. I know we've talked about musicals a number of times, and you guys always impress me so much with your knowledge of musicals that I feel a little intimidated to uh, oh, kind of delve into my preferences. No, you. everyone is open to engaging and speaking about their preferences. No, every, um, everyone is open. No, everyone ev- is... Everyone is... Uh, no, I'm saying... I, invited. I invite everyone of to uh, engage. And, and I feel that welcome spirit. I, because just, I just mean it's, uh, it's built, hard when you don't know a kind yeah. of medium well, knowing how to talk about it. That said, I had a ton of fun. I really loved the set. There was uh, a, a lot of really dynamic stuff done with the set, parts of the set that moved, depictions of like an underground yeah. layer it's and very water neat. sequences yeah. and just like the cool. use of space was really astounding. Sure. The music was really beautiful and the integration of, um, uh, you know, it's it takes place in an opera house, of course, and the integration of music done in an operatic idiom that is still part of the kind of feel, the musical feel of the musical, the, you know, like American Mm -hmm. show tunes musical thing, but um, has a a sincere operatic quality to it that is Mm -hmm. kind of a send up at times of opera, but also Mm -hmm. a loving send up. It's, it was really delightful. So right. It 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 was at times it seemed like it was satirizing the, the opera form but at the, and Other then also in, celebrating it. and also sub- celebrating it and pastiching it yeah and then also uh, well pastiching homaging it and then also interpolating that into a modern musical form as well so you had kind of echoes of that operatic form within a popular kind of musical theater form and then also there was uh, the embrace of like kind of a 20th century kind of non 
not sort of tonal kind of music, sort of a little a, bit more of an atonal, situation. an atonal situation going on, which was very cool to me as well. I mean, if I know a lot of people are familiar with the, the hits of the musical, but if you actually see the musical itself, you realize there is a lot of. Um, I wouldn't call it experimental because for the 80s that was had been done already a long time. But for musical theater, though, I would say maybe uh, a little bit more cutting edge, I, I suppose, because people are used to maybe a, more, a very diatonic kind of tonal centered uh, songs, I guess. But this in some of the songs in this this musical, it gets pretty... Uh, I would argue a little bit more out there than a, your normal musical, which that is very said, cool to me. The the almost all of the melodies, actually all the melodies in in Phantom of the Opera, all the songs are well quite melodic. They're easy to not easy to sing, but they're easy to hum to, and you, they're very, yeah, they're very in my, well my, defined. By, and my, by my definition of catchy, they're very catchy. Uh, right, I think uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So even though some of the things drift outside of our normal tonal, I, I guess I'm speaking a little bit uh, esoterically, I guess, for people that don't know tonal musical, what, that, what I'm talking about. I guess in our everyday everyday uh, relationship with music, we kind of think of music that we can uh, grasp onto and hum to because they kind of revolve around a certain center, and that center is sort of... Anyway, just in layman terms, it revolves around a certain musical center, some of the music in this don't necessarily revolve around that, but that nevertheless are still well-defined and you can still hum to them anyway. anyway. That's interesting. Well, I mean, you know, so I, yeah, and I don't know musical history that well, but I, I think of like uh, Stravinsky as having like uh, Not, broken from that a little bit. Yeah, and he's very humble. From Reda Springs very hummable. Yeah, um, exactly. Schoenberg's exactly. less hummable. Schoenberg uh, is less hummable. In fact, I'm reading, I'm revisiting one of my books, my textbooks from college called uh, A History of Western Music in, I forgot what it totally it's called, but anyway, I'm, I'm on a chapter that I was particularly interested in about uh, um, postmodernism in music, and they're talking about, I don't necessarily agree with the guy that wrote this article, but, oh, oh A History of Western Music and Documents, that's what it is, um, but the guy's talking about, okay, sorry, Nikki, uh, he wants me to move along here, but uh, the guy's talking about how what he what he thinks produces an effective uh, piece of music, and one of the things that he is arguing with the twelve tone music is that it needs to have some comprehensibility, I guess, to the audience. And while it can be comprehensible, not just on paper, which is comprehensible to whoever is reading the music and why it makes sense, but it needs to be comprehensible listening wise too. And that's not readily. Um, perceivable when you're listening because when you're listening to a piece of music it's you know anyway can i ask a question with so can i ask a question with regard to this observation that some of the opera or some of the musical had a little bit of a a more you know late middle to late 20th century radical musical feel to it i would say actually more of a a early to to mm, mid 20th century. early to mid yeah very well Are, are are there any particular numbers you have in mind or is it kind of like on the margins well i would say uh, producing like that song where the, he's using the whole tone scale a lot. Mm. And what I mean by that is, uh, it's, what song it's, is the, that? It's, it's the song that they're actually singing in, in the opera that's taking so place the opera toward the end of the musical. Towards the end of the musical. Right. And in fact, he's poking fun. So the, 
the lead opera singer in the music in the opera that they're performing is unable to sing that tune because he's so used to a more this traditional tonal center traditional. that I'm referring to before yeah. and that it seems avant-garde to him to be able yeah. to sing that. And he so uses that as an opportunity to mock the Phantom, does he not? He kind of, I believe he they does use that, that as a, they use that. Well, that's, that's, it's that's actually, a, in fact, the, he's the mocking himself part, because he well, can't, can I speak he's Max unable, Max, his art, speak artistry is not, can I speak up to standard, it seems. Uh, actually, Carlotta, who's the, the, the female lead, she pokes fun at the Phantom because yeah. she says, well, he's making it sound better than the Phantom right. wrote it. Because know? they have more traditional conservative exactly. musical and orientation. By the way, right. the, the, but it takes place in the no, 1800s. Matt, the, so. It takes place in the late 1800s, 1881. I just looked it up, by the way. I know, but um, I, and I, so I, I know. That's I know. the time when, you know, bounds were, boundaries were really being pushed at that time. Right. You know, it, we didn't quite. music was starting to become a thing and this test no place and in not quite yet it just a takes place in later in the decade actually but some license can be but taken some license yeah, sure. but this takes place in France and you know those composers you know impressionist composers were were were, were big in France I mean you know Debussy was you know, obviously at the forefront of that. and Right, stuff. Debussy started to use the whole, t- as I mentioned before, if you are a musical, uh, if you understand music history a little bit, he was using the whole tone scale. That was a big thing. As, it was one of the things that he was starting to do. But that, in his that's music. the thing about Debussy is even though he's doing that, his music still sounds beautiful. He's able to make yeah. it sound, as Max is saying, comprehensible or perceivable. Palatable. 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 Thank I'm you. Sorry, yeah. Um, and, and still be enjoyable to the yeah, audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's... Uh, it's like Burt Bacharach, actually. Um, if you, if his obviously known for writing uh, many, many pop standards, um, but if you really dissect his music, the way he wrote was pretty complex. I mean, even the time signatures he would use were not your normal four-four time signatures. Sure, is really. And I cool. should just mention the use of a whole tone scale. I was just using that as an example of what. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber might have done. He was doing a lot of different things, actually, that seemed very 20th century. But I will say the the main tunes, like All I Ask of You, Music of the Night, and, you know, uh, Point of No Return, those are traditionally, those are kind of more traditional pop songs. It sounds more popular. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, um, like modern pop songs, but they're more kind of traditional pop Sure. Standards, if you will. Are, in fact, the one song in it that I would say is a little bit more of like a modern pop thing, at least of the time, was the main theme, the Phantom of the Opera. And I think that had to do yeah, with you like, got the drum machine. The instrumentation actually was kind of lent itself. The drums and, I and still the synthesizers. Like, and one might even think that, that it sounds a little dated at this point. I liked it a lot anyway. I think it's it, in the same way that you might listen to 80s music now. I mean, it's, it's still great. Anyway. One of the things that I... Uh, thought a lot about while watching the musical as someone who really doesn't see a lot of stage work is it is so breathtaking to see a work that operates in the constraints of time and space that are demanded of a stage production where you're always, even when you're changing the sets and it really took you to beautiful places underground and all over the place, you're still in one space and you're still in one sequence of time in a way that you can't truly break from. And it, one of the things I thought about a lot while watching the musical is how incredible cinema is for having, you know, for breaking from those constraints and uh, jumping around in time and space. And I think that's one of the really interesting, that might be an interesting 
entry point into this documentary, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Well, why don't we make that the entry point? So we're going to move on from our conversation about family opera. But I, I, just, I, just con- real quick, one last word. I'm sorry. Yes, you're, I totally agree. And that's what makes the musical theater art form, one, in my opinion, one of the best forms of entertainment because you have all these different uh, jobs working together to create this bigger piece within just this confined space it's it's really quite striking. Very special yeah. Yeah, it's very special. it's my favorite art form uh performing arts form I, I just think you get everything you get the works i mean that's what opera means it means the works and it, you get it all in one and it's anyway and, it's, and the there's opera, something about the live performance that i really anyway enjoyed. fans of the opera go see it uh los angeles plays itself so this made you fans of the opera made you think about cinema and um in in relation to this film speak on that yeah, it absolutely did make me think about cinema in the way that I just said, where it made me uh, marvel at operating within those constraints of space and time and also marvel at, you know, film's capacity to break out of them and how much we are, we take that for granted, at, you know, with our modern media consumption and um, consuming a lot more, you know, f- film type media than live stage production type media. And the one of the things I love so much about this documentary is that it seems to me to have a very it has a uh, it's built in such a way that it forces you to re-examine some of those leaps that cinema makes, particularly with regard to space and place that um, that you so often take for granted and don't think about when watching a movie. I mean, one of the questions I had for you two in, in thinking about the movie going into it and then watching it now uh, is what it made, you know, how it made you think about place, the placeness of movies to, you know, it's a broad question, but like uh, L.A. is a place the setting, uh, I guess. He says early on in the movie that Los Angeles is a place where reality and representation have a muddled relationship to each other right. because, you know mass representation is created there often on location in the city of LA. And so LA functions as many places in movies that depict other places. So, uh, you know, a fictional Switzerland is, is shot in a literal, um, some lake outside of LA, right? Uh, right. You know, this, that, and the other thing. uh, And Arrowhead, I believe, or, or something like that. Yeah. I think it was Lake Arrowhead. So I think part of the premise of the movie is that L.A. as a city is stretched to be all sorts of places. And then our concept of L.A., including for people who live in L.A., and one of the things I want to talk about a lot is your relationship as Angelinos to the city you were raised in. Uh, people My name who, is Nikki. What's that? Never mind. Go right. Uh, who people who are from there, their concept of the place they're from is informed by this entertainment that they're watching. And so there's this kind of cycle of uncertainty about place that makes you both more interested in your placeness in some ways and where you are and the identity of the place you're in and also more adrift and uncertain about where you are and what the nature of the place you're in Uh is. So uh, something that I liked about this documentary was that the the filmmaker, I forget his name at at the moment, he is a native Los Angelino, uh, as, as Max and I are, and he seems to take a lot of pride in the city. He likes the city of Los Angeles very much, but he does have a distaste for the way it's represented by outsiders sometimes, um, either in film 
or uh, outside of film. Um, he, he referred to, uh, I can't remember the terms he used, but they were like, he had a low tourist and high tourist. Those uh, are the terms. Those are the terms. And um, he felt like the low tourists were people who wanted to separate themselves from, from, Lo- from Los Angeles, like Woody Allen, for example, who didn't, who the filmmaker seems to think don't, doesn't really have a good sense of what Los Angeles is all about. You know, they, they only have an understanding of what Los through Angeles is the media. through the media and through movies and, and television. Um, and so I think, as a Los Angelino, I agree with that because I, I do think it requires living there for some time or at least visiting Los Angeles a few times and just spending a significant amount of time there to really appreciate how unique the city is. Because it really isn't like any other city in that there is no center of the city. There's a lot of strip malls and it, it's very wide, big space. You know, there's a lot of space there, um, which I like a lot. I like that it's it's kind of got a more relaxed feel to it than most urban. But there's a lot of lot happening too. There's a the lot happening time. too. Yeah, um, you drive 15 minutes and it's you not get to another. You get to another uh, a totally different part of the city, and it's it's vast, very vast. And uh, somebody who doesn't really understand Los Angeles might associate Los Angeles with what they see in the movies, which and in the sure movies they'll show they'll show downtown Los Angeles and that's the only part of Los Angeles that has skyscrapers. And when we were growing up, downtown Los Angeles was not a not place where one would go to normally. One, it was it was not a place to hang out because it was a bad it was a bad area. I know it's becoming like quote unquote hip to, to well, be in downtown. It's becoming now. gentrified. Um, but downtown Los Angeles was never really Skid Row. It, yeah, it was never really a place that represented Los Angeles except in the movies because they wanted Los An- they wanted to make Los Angeles look like it was what their idea of what a city should look like and right. skyscrapers is that that's what they're 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 basically trying to make Los Angeles look like New York City but it's not New York City I mean it's you'd Los go Angeles. down there if you had some business to do down there if you needed to go to the if you had Los jury, Angeles you had jury department duty. of Los Angeles Department of Water and Power for Science Bowl which is what we did actually. Um, and I think that disjuncture between the impulse of the movies to turn LA to like squeeze identity of LA out of the big buildings downtown and the more common lived experience of people in, you know, Watts or Glendale or, um, you know, wherever. Or Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon. That's where we grew up particularly, actually. Is, is at the, right. And is at the core of this movie and that, that kind of, that disjuncture, what it kind of does to a sense of identity. The narrator of the movie talked like he had a shaken identity about his own relationship right. to his town. Yeah, I think because part of that is obviously he has his own identity that he of, of how he grew up in the town, but certainly the movie industry has influenced his own experience in living that city because it's it. Hollywood has influenced Los Angeles, the city, and as it well, is all you know? around the city. You see films and television being shot there, even as a pedestrian. You know, you you see that all the time. In fact, right. So there was an inf- episode of Seinfeld. We know exactly, like it was being shot. We, we used to play hockey in this park in the valley, and uh, in the San Fernando Valley, and there was an episode of Seinfeld being shot on the tennis courts at that park while we were playing hockey. And we know the exact episode it was. And so that is part of my upbringing is seeing those things happen while I, 
while we were doing our normal, not specifically childhood growing up type of thing to uh, do, specific activities, you know, sure. playing hockey, for yeah. example. Yeah. One of the things I think that's interesting that the movie does is it takes. It, it points to examples like that and one of the few instances of footage that isn't taken straight out of another movie are uh, just some shots that he takes around the city of the temporary signs people point up sure, pointing yeah, the sure, way right. to a movie shoot right, somewhere. Right. And so he takes uh, the like day-to-day experience of encountering film production in the city and he also points out that a lot of the city is built around the history of film production. So you have that staircase that Laurel and Hardy dropped a piano down right. in Silver Lake. You have, you know, Echo Park, that lake in Echo Park that is so associated with Chinatown. You just have like plaques everywhere for Chaplin and this, this, you and that. You have that, that, um, that, that building that, it's been used in so many films that they went over. I can't remember what it's called. Bradbury. The Bradbury. Yeah, Bradbury. The Bradbury building. It's a beautiful it's building. But it's, it's beautiful. In so in other words, but in, and you don't notice that it's used in, I didn't notice that that was used in so many of the movies that I've seen over the years until it was pointed out to me exactly. in this documentary. Well, I actually knew cool. about that building before. It's a well-known building. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't know about it, actually. I mean, it's, it, is, it is well-known, and it's well-known to have been used in movies, actually. Um, whatever. I mean, in fact, regardless it, of that building, I think there, he does point out a lot of instances of how the city is used as the infrastructure of film, as sure. the, well, the he, background of film, in a way that a person wouldn't notice. I mean, it well, is really right. Remarkable. Well, he said he he says, you know, the Hollywood sign. He he had a love hate relationship with the Hollywood sign, which towers over the whole city of Los Angeles. But it's a kind and, of a, and it's it's Hollywood. It used to say Hollywood Land, by the way. It, it's representing. That this city is the city for for, for film, film and, industry, the film and television industry, and Hollywood kind of soared like the sign Hollywood. It just it kind of he um, calls it the a symbol of the literal ascension of Hollywood, the metonym sure, of Hollywood. Sure. He calls it a metonym sure. he, over the he, city of. But Los he actually Angeles. says he should hate that sign. Right. But he says he likes it somehow anyway. And I, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I've we we were all when I was growing up, we had a view of the city, and we were always able to see the Hollywood sign from our house mm-hmm. growing up. Yeah, I, I I guess part of it is, for for me personally, it's like. I like the I, I embrace that part of the, that is part of the city and I think that's cool. Like what I don't like is people who have not been to Los Angeles have a preconceived idea of what Los Angeles is like or what Los Angeles people are like or Los like. Angeles people are like through their their view through the movies or in the media not even through reality television through reality actually. television or just through the, through the media. And I have a problem with that uh, and that is part I mean that's Hollywood to, is to blame for that. With that said, though, I embrace those, those aspects of ho- Hollywood being a part of Los Angeles because that does create a unique identifying uh, part of Los Angeles, the city itself as well. So in other words, I, I understand this, uh, this love-hate, this uh, ambivalence in a way. Uh, part of it is just my, I don't like other people's preconceived notions of Los Angeles, yet at the same time, I embrace... Uh, why those notions are there in the first place. Uh, but I feel like you need to experience Los Angeles before you can embrace those notions, I guess, about the city because they are a unique part of the city. I mean, you will see people like, I, I remember we were so reticent to get cell phones in high school because I had always associated that with like some sort of Hollywood producer on his phone and being very phony. And I would see that from phony. now and then. And 
yeah. I had so strongly associated that with this flip phone as somebody on the phone trying to do business and it seems so phony to me and I was like, I want to get as far away from that as possible and that was, I would see that in Los Angeles. With that said, though, there are normal people too <laughs> who are using their phones and it, not, not, but not, I think that's kind of... I, I wouldn't say normal people, but I would say non-industry related people. Right, as he, as he pointed out in the film, only one in 40 people are part of the industry actually in Los Angeles. And, but at the same time, all these sites that are used in Hollywood movies, it is kind of cool that you're able to see them. You're able to go to Los Angeles and say, hey, this was in that movie. That's so cool that I'm seeing it in real life. And that's a cool thing that that's part of the city that we grew up in, that, that this, this uh, city that right. is, has been shot so many times and is a part of everyone's entertainment yeah, I is agree. part of my... Uh, is part of my growing up. I think that's right. cool at the same time. I think that's know? a great observation. And you, he, so he, right. he kind of culminates with the Hollywood sign as one end of a gradient of, um, so he builds this, this kind of continuum between, uh, and this plays into the title of the movie, between aspects of the city that always play themselves. So the Hollywood sign always plays itself. It's never like a Hollywood sign in Paris, right? Right. And then on the other end of the continuum, are very obscure, you know, like a street on Sunset Boulevard or something that is actually playing a street in some other city, just some place that right. doesn't play itself. Right. And then there are a lot of things in between. And so, you know, Nikki, you had you were not familiar with the Bradbury building, but some people are, and there are some things that more frequently play themselves and some things that more often kind of slip into the slip into the mist of this foggy relationship between re representation and reality. And it's interesting to hear you point out that you value the way in which your childhood, in which your, your upbringing was shaped by an identification with some of those symbols. And I wonder whether the movie brought up for you at all a complication with that. that. That kind of identifying gets complicated on the other end of the continuum where you don't know some of the ways in which the world around you is depicted back at you and how your experience is represented in this world of entertainment and representation. And so there, the, the muddled end is also an interesting corollary to, to, to the, the very straightforward identification with the Hollywood sign. Does that make sense, that, that yeah. framework? Uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I think so, yeah. You're just wondering if, it's, if we have that same muddled relationship as... Yeah, yeah, as the filmmaker, or yeah, I mean, um, because I want to, I, I want to touch up on on what Max was saying real quick, sure, was, or expand expand on that. Um, and maybe this will help answer your question. A lot of people will, you know, be very derisive about Los Angeles, or because Los Angeles has so much to do with the film and, and television industry, they despise Los Angeles. But I think I think film and television is a big part of the arts in general, and it should not be um, diminished or undermined because it's film and television. Rather, it should be as, as celebrated as literature and fine arts. So here's, here's where I want to uh, draw an analogy. Whenever I go, or when I was traveling in Europe, when I would go to a museum in, in Florence, when I would see like something by Artemisia Gentileschi, or, or uh, if I would see the, the Statue of David, I would be like, wow, I studied this in my art history class in, in college, and now I'm seeing it in real life, and I, there was something about it that seemed so cool to me. Or if I would go to the Louvre and, and I would see a Jacques-Louis David painting, I would be like, 
this is the painting I actually studied in the book that I, and, and so, or, but people don't seem to, uh, raise their nose at that kind of, um, relationship, relationship because something about fine arts that's a little bit more acceptable for, for people, I guess. I think, but when, it, yeah. I think, I think film and television are just as important. And so the fact that all these historic buildings and, and places in Los Angeles were shown in, the, in films, that just means that we grew up with all these artistic, or, or, these art pieces. Los Angeles is a big art piece in a way for me. And it's, it's as if I were, I were studying that in a book and I were to visit Los Angeles I'm, and I'm like, oh, that's that. That was in that movie right there. Right, right. It's the same thing. But for some reason, people will not uh, respect that kind of quality as much because it has to do with the film and, and television industry. But I think they're wrong about that. I think film and television should be just as celebrated as, as the other arts. Right. I think part of the reason why they stick their nose up at some of these things is because it's so highly, some of the stuff that it is not good in film or in television is still represented in that city. Whereas for instance, you're going to see something that you've studied, uh, and it's been studied by so many art historians and you're in amazement when you see it in real life, but you won't necessarily see the bad stuff that you've studied because you don't study the bad stuff, you know? Because, and I think part of it has film. to do with a tradition of people, you know, film and television weren't always considered high art forms back in the day. I mean, uh, that was something the commoners went to, you know? And uh, I think, you know, we called it the idiot box. Television was called the idiot box for the longest time. And now, I would say only until recently, television is being embraced as a really high art form. I think part of it has to do with the the quality of shows now. I mean, but uh, even movies back in the day when they started was had that same connotation, I think, surrounding it, I feel like. And I think a a big thing that he tries to accomplish in this movie is, um, is locate a lot of integrity in certain aspects of, you know, a, his, a history of movies and a history of even like B movies or low, lower brown movies. Uh, he talks about Dragnet a lot, for example, a popular right. 1960s TV show. Funny, well-written show, by the way. Um, indeed. Well, and he has he has a love-hate relationship with Dragnet. He calls it, he characterizes it as somewhat dripping with condescension, I believe. But I, but like the, the, the alienation effect, I think one of the things I was going for earlier when I was talking about the continuum is that there's this identification with um, the parts of the city's tradition of of he he uses the word simulacrum a lot the his, you know the Simulac, city becoming yeah. a representation in in and of itself um, a simulation sure, um, sure that that there's something there are aspects of that that you can that he you know has has owned and be and identified with and other aspects of it that produces strong effect of alienation um that person didn't agree with you they didn't but i think it's true and (laughs) and i think that well more than that i think it's what he's asserting and and, uh well i guess here's what i i might disagree with that is when you're growing up there i'm not even thinking about any of this at all i guess also, my knowledge of film and television when I'm growing up is very limited. I haven't had that much experience with it yet. I'm growing up, you know? So I don't really think about how much uh, of an influence Hollywood has had an effect on, on that city itself. And I know he said simulacrum, so in other words, the, 
that representation or whatever it is has become my has become the thing that I'm growing up in. This well, the there's other. an interest. He uses uh, Angel's Flight as an interesting sure. example of this, which okay. used to have a real social utility because sure. there was this Bunker Hill neighborhood yes. and it this Angel's Flight funicular, which sure. is like a small car that just goes up a steep hill a very short distance and it, it provides access from this neighborhood up up elevated neighborhood of Bunker Hill down into the like belly of downtown and it was over a period of time from the 30s to the 60s or something like that uh kind of an evolving slummier and slummier neighborhood that a lot of pictures were really fascinated with and they were interested in it as a depiction of working class life, a depiction of kind of lower class dissatisfaction with the wealthy uh-huh. society around them, a depiction of like, you know, a man on the lamb or like, right. you know, there's a lot of dramatic uh-huh. like, uh, like escapades that can happen in an environment like that. And then, but meanwhile, the society became very uncomfortable with this, this lower class uh, population right by downtown. And it was wiped away very intentionally and angel flight, this funicular, this train was removed. And then it was brought back after that population was kind of in a different area though. Nearby, nearby, but not at the same spot, though, I think is where it was. Before. Right. And I think, crucially, the area of the neighborhood of Bunker Hill was kind of erased. As it was a erased. Right. Neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And so it doesn't matter whether it was in the same place or nearby. Right. Like there was no population of working class people that could infect the downtown area in the same way. And so it didn't it was brought back. At, and this is where the simulacrum of the you know, it was brought back as like a a similar thing that evoked the spirit of the city's past, but in fact had a wholly different relationship to the city as as it no longer was a useful way people without other modes of transportation would get to, you know, a commercial center downtown. It was just a fun thing that you can do. Like, look at the short train on a steep hill. Right. And I think think they they actually used that in, in, in the movie La La Land. Sure. Lots of movies, lots of movies. But I think the reason though, well, but part of the yeah, reason it has that sense of like history and that we have a sense of nostalgia for the old times of that uh, that thing is because it's been used in movies yeah. so much. Exactly, and I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, I mean that's the simulacrum, I guess. In effect, it's like uh, it's now the reason for it is is because it's. Of its representation, yeah. basically, and he refers he refers to LA as a city with very little history and a lot of nostalgia. And he also refer, and I think that example of Angel's Flight is is a good example that can both have a nostalgic effect that you identify with and value, like the Hollywood sign, and also an alienation effect that you can see and be brought. You can connect it to the sort of self destructive history of this city that won't take care of its neediest and is always trying to like look superficially best and while like uh while neglecting its its most you know profound needs and and feel an alienation at the same time and a, and a distaste for it i feel like it can embody both of those is kind it, of spirits i mean that the movie i think really articulates that obviously that's a, a really cool thing about or that's an interesting point you bring up about angel's flight but isn't that kind of can you bring that to any major city? San Francisco, for example, it's so gentrified at this point that just whole you know neighborhoods of kind of working class people are being pushed out, and really the tech industry is taking over that city. And it, it 
and a lot of landmarks that were once there are, it, it, it's like what you say, it, 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 there, there's this place that's on Divisadero Street in San Francisco. It's a barbecue place. There, there was a place there before. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to relate this to no, the Angels. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Angels Flight. Kind I, of. It's I think different, it's though, because it's not being represented in film, though. Right? I think that's a crucial distinction. Yeah. So, first of all, the movie made in 2003, like, urban renewal in lots of cities is a big thing. Sure. Yeah. New York City, um, that's happened a lot. Yeah, like, Williamsburg still had some grit to it in 2003. So, I think there's an extent to which the movie needs to be seen in the time, in the context, and, like, now cities sure. are all being overrun with too much money, and it's driving out driving out, you know, quote unquote, regular people and eroding the kind of character and, and like lived in feel and it's too glossy and Bloombergian and whatever. But, um, there's also a, the, the crucial aspect of LA being a city that is about making representations of things, of stories, of cities. And, and that LA would, has historically served itself up as the skeleton on which you could throw any identity forever for for the entirety of the 20th century and that um and that there's this more confused relationship with history that you have because it is constantly erasing its recent past and constantly restructuring itself to accommodate uh, you know, a smiling exterior and, 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 and stuff. Right. Like it's that. embracing the represent it's often embracing the representation of itself in movies as it's real representation. That's at times. right. Yeah. That's where the simulacrum comes from. And then at the same time, there's also organic, uh, things that are happening in the city that are represented as just organically how it's represented. But that's what's itself. so cool about it. And so that, that there's that, as you said, it's a muddled quality, I think, is how that becomes to be. Now, as but a person, that's what makes it so unique. Right. Actually. I think that's cool. Indeed. I think that's a cool thing about it. But it, I don't know. I, I would say our, our childhood was more or less normal. You know, I mean, we, right. we played sports growing up. We, we went to school. I mean, it, it didn't really, I mean, our mother did try to push us to audition for things when we were kids, but we didn't like it. So we didn't really do that. You know, we, but she didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. That was there. Um, that was there, but it. Uh, but mainly it was, yeah, it was just like any other latchkey kid. You know, we, 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 we rode, rode around bikes, the, you the know, street, hut, sure the setting, bikes, skateboarded, you know, we, the setting is a bit different. I mean, as, as it is and to anyone else, but there's a reason why I'm able to relate on many levels to people from the Midwest, nevertheless, and they're from the Midwest and it's not like we still grew up relatively normal. Maybe did, I mean, did, did quote unquote the, normal, I guess. Sure. Did either the spirit of the movie or the way we're talking about it, or maybe the way I'm talking about it now, um, produce any kind of defensive feeling? Do you feel like there's a suggestion either in the yeah, movie? Yeah, I think he's. Whoa. I think he's hating. Well, I think the, the defensiveness is. I feel like he's hating a little bit too much. While I do, I, I agree in the sense that I don't like people's preconceived ideas of. What Los Angeles is, because or what Los Angelinos are like. In fact, or what Los Angeles people, are like. People are Let often me. surprised that me and Max are fr- from Los Angeles. Uh, they're like, "Oh, we would have pegged you for from being the East Coast." And I'm like, "Well, that just goes to show you people how don't know what the hell they're people talking don't about. know what you're. You don't know really know." Right, your preconceived notion of for what a person from a certain city is should be like is wrong. You know, right? And I guess the defensive part though comes from. He, he, it seems like he has a big distaste for a lot of times when it, Los Angeles is represented or misrepresented in the movies. But I think 
his distaste is distaste maybe comes from the fact of uh, people perceiving Los Angeles because of that reason, but when in fact they should just embrace that this is a fictional movie or something like that. And I think, but that I don't know. Maybe I agree with him more than I think. I I I think that's a cool thing that our city is that's being represented not, that's in. That's not the question. No, the question is: Do we have a distaste or defensiveness to what he's saying? His attitude or what, yeah. about about the film industry in. In the, in and you just implied that you disagree with him. I guess we haven't even but talked I guess about I, him as having yeah, a specific sure, argument. Sure, but yet. I guess I know. But I guess what I'm trying to say in talking through this, maybe I agree with him more than I think. I, I think it's cool that my city is being re- is in movies, and I'd be like, oh, that's that spot. That I know that spot. I, I grew in up in the movie that Swingers. Spot. They 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 mention like certain zip codes, and that only a, a, a like or Los Angelino or, or, or whatever codes that, that uh, Los Angeles only a Los Angelino would would understand that we're like, oh, he got like, John, oh, she's from the 310. He, he's like, oh, he's, is it A1A? And he's like, 310, oh, 310. Right. You know, it's 310 like, is Beverly Hills. Or it's not just Beverly Hills. It goes all the way out to Torrance, you know? Did you guys get the impression that this guy liked movies? Yes. Well, not all movies, but he definitely did. Li- it's so interesting, actually, the, the clips that he would show of movies that he liked, they seem to be kind of seedier movies sometimes, you know? Like, um... He showed a clip of like two people having sex on a desk, but it was shot at an angle and from a distance where you could see the architecture. The Ennis House, is, that was an example of him talking about the Ennis House. Right, and he thought it was so beautiful how the architecture was upstaging yeah. what the main focal point should have been. And basically. I think one of the things he liked about that scene is that he, he, he was, we should talk about architecture. He was really into architecture. He talked about Bradbury Building. He talked about Ennis House. He talked about Frank Lloyd right? I mean, yeah, he talked and about people LA's that were modernist architecture. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Lautner houses. Yeah. Um, he was a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright. And just LA having a wealth of modernist architecture that he mm-hmm. thought w- had fallen into the convention of being used in cinema as depicting kind of moral banking. Bankruptcy. He talked about that a lot in the context of L.A. Confidential um, and the bad guys all living in these beautiful modernist plazas. Right, but I think that's, again, that's an example where I, I, I actually would disagree with him. Part of what I disagree with him on is, yes, it's showing these bad guys that inhabit these houses that are cool houses, I guess, and he's saying that it forever... Uh, we have a, this association with these houses and, and CD culture, I guess, or something like that. I guess that's an argument he's making, right? Not just him. He quotes from an L.A. Times architectural critic who, shortly after the release of L.A. Confidential, releases an essay arguing that it makes perfect sense. It's basically like just a critique of modernist architecture. It makes perfect sense, says this this critic in the L.A. Times, that these bad guys in this movie and in movies past would live in these modernist houses because, you know, these open glass structures that were intended to represent some kind of open social utopic idea in fact just show the kind of sleek moral bankruptcy of, but, uh, yeah, but I, I, I disagree Matt, because okay. those houses are also shown to be inhabited by good people I think well, too maybe perhaps I mean not conventionally so argues the movie I don't know I mean, Max, right, Max can I actually get a chance to speak I'm sorry you've been speaking a lot I just want to okay. I just want to say he, br- he, he brings up a clip from Annie Hall where they're in Los Angeles they're driving through a street in Los Angeles uh, I think it's Beverly Hills, and Woody Allen quotes, or he he says something to the degree of, 
you know, look at this. Uh, every house is different. There's no, there's, you know, there's no uh, architectural uh, synchronicity or some, something to that degree. Uniformity. Uniformity. Yeah. Uh, cohesion. Yeah, there's no cohesion. And they, they all just look very different, each house. And I think that's so cool. I, I think what Woody Allen is criticizing or, or complaining about, I actually think is a cool thing. I think, I think it's... What does that have to do with... You're bringing something else, uh, another well, point Well, no, it, up, it's, it's, it, it's the idea that... Um, the role of buildings. I mean, architecture was a big part of the movie. Sure, I'm sorry, but you were you were. I was talking about because he was talking about L.A. Confidential. How it's no, I know, but he's talking about these modernist uh, buildings, buildings being associated with these bad guys, basically. Right, but I actually think that. Yeah, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm I'm going off on a tangent. Right, you are going off on a tangent. But to include what you're saying, I think it's. Uh, Los Angeles has a diverse collection of architecture. I mean that. It's not just the bad guys that have these cool, neat homes. Actually, a lot of people have cool, neat homes. Right. Sorry, that's what I, I wanted to try to say. Uh, yeah. it, which is the truth about Los Angeles. It's, uh, and, you know, those, those modern architecture buildings, I mean, if you go to Los Angeles, some of those buildings are not used in movies, and you can still see them in Los Angeles in the hills of, of, of Hollywood. And, uh, and sometimes they are used in movies, and they're not being used by the bad guys, you know? Yeah. I mean, he shows a clip from the movie The Trip, which is this Roger Corman movie with, with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and, and Bruce Dern. Um, and it takes place in the Hollywood Hills. Um, and uh, the house that he, he takes acid in, the, the, where, which is the setting for the greater portion of the film, um, is kind of more of a modernist house. I mean, one could associate and, that with being... Sure, but, CD, there's, but no real, there's no real villain in that movie, though. It's really just being, about being on an acid trip. It's everybody's kind of a more or less a good guy in the, except maybe the drug itself. But, you know, it, I think it's not so much that bad guys are attracted to this, these kind of modernist houses. It's, it's just that it's, it, it was a, a symbol for the times that people looked to the future and they wanted to be a part of that. And, well, but, and also, also, here's another point is these bad guys in these movies often have money. And I think that's what it's representing in these houses, these homes, is, hey, these guys have money, actually, and they have, are able to have these, afford these cool-looking homes. Yeah, I know, homes. but it's not even... I don't even think you needed money to afford those kinds of I know, but what I'm just saying, in, in the representation in these films, it's showing these bad guys having these... So, I, in, in a way, it's wrong. the film depicts it incorrectly. Sorry. No, 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 but that's, I mean, that's his lot, problem, I yeah, think. You well, know? He, he makes a lot of points at once. I think it would be wrong to distill his point to any singular thing. He, he points out, um, yeah, it's often rich people. He says a lot of the modernist architecture functions as like, it can exist in different time and place. So like weird looking buildings can be future buildings. And a lot of the time, these weird buildings are like in Japan. And he, a lot of he uses the phrase yellow peril. Right. Um, as a way that a lot of the time depiction of like Japanese guys with mansions are used to um, kind of play into the economic anxiety of the 80s in which in which Japanese business interests were doing a lot of stuff in the United States. He talks about the Yakatomi Plaza in Die Hard, um, which is a postmodernist structure, he calls it. Well, even the Bradbury building is used in Blade Runner, and uh-huh. uh, uh, Ridley Scott was like... Uh, 
his 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 co-writer on the movie was like, I don't want to use that. It's used in so many movies. It's and a really, cliche, he called it. Re, yeah, and, and really Scott, Scott said, was, no, I'm going to use it differently. I'm going right. to do it differently. And, um, and, it and, he, does. Differently. he, and does. he cool. does. He succeeded. And so, it, but it, it's used, that, that building, that same building that's used in a ton of films is used to depict something in the future, like something... No, not necessarily. I mean, like in The Artist, for instance, it's just depicted as itself. No, that, but that's not what I'm saying... The Bradbury building? I'm saying that that... Well, so I don't think that the filmmaker is saying that he dislikes that mo- that buildings are used in movies. I think he likes the Blade Runner example specifically because it goes against the cliche. I think what he dislikes are some of these instances in which Hollywood, as this ascendant spirit that is separate from Los Angeles, but like right. gets to govern what Los Angeles means, which I think he resents... Um, that it devises these notions of what a certain type of building or a certain type of neighborhood sure. means in cinema language, right. which it went, particularly when it's out of sync. I mean, the, the type of movie he ends on, he ends on black cinema made in the 70s and 80s by like neo, he used neo-realist Charles Burnett, sure. some, other, some other filmmakers, and he likes that he thinks they represent things in a way that comports more with a... The reality of Los Angeles. Yeah, like a... Yeah. Well, I guess because... Regular person's experience of Los Angeles. Sure, and that is probably why people have uh, the wrong association with Los Angeles, or or this preconceived notion, is that they see these ultra-modernist buildings often, or they see these depictions of what... uh, These extravagances, I guess, and they think they associate... Holly, all of Los Angeles with that because that's how it's depicted in in the movies, you know. Right. And I I, that, I understand that, that dis that, that extravagance for, is not that extravagance is is kind not of not afforded to most people, you know. Or it's not just that it's not afforded to most people. It's just it's 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 sparse throughout the city. It's not it's not everywhere you go. Right. That's true. Um, and but part of what I think is really special about the movie is that he doesn't take too hard line and ideological approach. He has a very I feels very dialectic to me. He there are ways in which he is very um, attracted to the Hollywood sign itself, as he says, and he resents some expat, some like British film critic who lives in LA who mocks the Hollywood sign, but he also has this alienation feeling vis-a-vis Hollywood being instrumentalizing Los Angeles as, as this like meaning making machine. It like generates its own meaning totally separate from how people who live here experience the city. And so he resents it. He admires it. It shapes how he thinks of his his place and his history of his place. Right. It uh, sometimes there's an antagonism. Sometimes there's a kind of an identity and a union there. And and I think like one of the things that's so great about the movie is his moving around about it and how he doesn't clearly structure sure, it. Sure, but like I, the movies I don't like you in the feel movie, like Los Angeles does that not just for Los Angeles, but it it shapes it the for New York of, a lot, of too. New York City as well, and in Chicago. In fact. I was watching a review. And Paris. I was watching a review of uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert talking about Ferris Bueller's Day Off and how, because they, Siskel and Ebert were from Chicago. Chicago, and they did not like how Chicago was represented in that movie. Uh, they thought the filmmakers kind of got it wrong, even though John Hughes was from that area. That's fascinating. Himself. Do you remember any instances of what they criticized? They in were talking about the parade uh, scene that was going on. Uh, Twist and Shout? Yeah. yeah, Twist and Shout. They, they were talking about how 
that kind of thing wouldn't happen or uh, like not that that wouldn't happen, but they were pointing out the inconsistency. I thought it was unfair, actually, their their critique on on the way it was represented because they were saying, oh, this shot of what what they were showing, that should have been over in this other part of the city. Um, Geographic license. Yeah, he talks about that. But I think that's okay. And who cares, though? Who cares, though? For most people... You have to just embrace, I think maybe as, as a Los Angelino, because it happens more often than any other pe- movie, uh, I'm willing to accept that. Suspend the disbelief. Yeah, I'm willing to suspend the disbelief. Uh, it's a work of fiction. It doesn't matter, you know? Well, he touches on that, and he didn't seem particularly hung up on that. He, he has a segment right. of the movie where he goes through the lies that Hollywood tells about L.A., and he right. calls some of them... Lies we want to believe, some of them simply benign lies, some of them annoying lies, some of them malignant lies. He right, he does like, say malignant uh, a few so, times. But I mean. the geographic license thing is on the less serious end. Sure. He, he like undermines that right. point when he brings it up. He says, it's hard to make a theoretical point against it, but I just find it a little silly. And well, but New, York City, but New York City is, is depicted in, in a lot of different ways in, in, in the film, in film. Like, well, and it's very different... Do you but, feel like the argument of the movie was that m- it bothered the filmmaker when movies didn't sufficient didn't portray Los Angeles with sufficient accuracy? Do you think it was just an argument about accuracy? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And which I agree with. I agree. Um, didn't you just say you don't agree with it and that you like geographic no, license? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I don't I I agree with him not about the geographic license thing. Not not but more about the well, I, I, it just still does have to do with location. I, I but personally, in films, when when they show Los Angeles, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, where they show downtown Los Angeles, the skyscrapers as a depiction of what Los Angeles is. You know, you know the the, the establishing shots of Los Angeles. They'll show those skyscrapers, but that's really not what should represent Los Angeles. And I have a problem with that, and and because that leads to people believing that that's what Los Angeles is supposed to be like. Well, okay, it's interesting that you pointed... Now, when you're talking about geographic license, by the way, that does play into social license, too, as well. I mean, like, in other words, the geography... Like, let's say they said, oh, that parade in, in, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that wouldn't have happened here. It would have happened over here. That often might uh, play into this idea of your social economic stature too. Like, oh, this parade probably would have happened on a more, a less seedier area or something like that. Um, but that does happen. So that play, so when he's talking about malignant lies, I think that geographic license does play into that too as well as in his argument um, because it's representing a part of the city that actually uh, might actually ha- be associated with a different social economic uh, a stature, I guess, uh, than, than where that parade might have taken place or something like that. Um, You're I mean, saying I think it's his argument in the end, the accuracy. Uh, as you said before, I think he's that he doesn't have just that one argument. His overarching argument is not just that. And I think really what it comes down to is something that I relate to in a lot is, is that people, he doesn't like people's preconceived notions of what uh, Hollywood is like or Los Angeles is like because it's often not accurately portrayed in movies, um, but he, that inaccuracy he doesn't necessarily dislike for himself, you know what I mean? So in other words, he can suspend his disbelief and be like, that's not an accurate portrayal, but whatever, it's a movie. It's it doesn't fine. even have to be accurate. I think it's more like 
if Los Angeles is portrayed in a good light, good light, then that's when I like it. It's or that's when I like the filmmaker's portrayal of it. Like, but I will bring up the movie La 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 La, La Land again. It, at least geographically speaking, it shows how beautiful the city is. Um, like, and what it has to offer. But e- even in a somewhat fantastical way, it does that. And but I think that's cool. And right, I but like it, that. it is. Even Again, though, he would have a problem with that because it's still not representing. He's basically saying. I know, that but what I'm saying is, I disagree. Not, I disagree with him on that, on that, that basis. Then, where it doesn't have to be accurate, it just has to be that Los Angeles shouldn't be portrayed as always, kind of not a cool place to be. Well, I don't. I don't, I don't think, think that accuracy is is as central as maybe. I don't think it's really all that central to his argument. I mean, he does talk for, I mean. Oh, I thought that's what you were bringing up, that that was his argument. I was asking if that's what you guys thought. I don't think that's the case. That's what I'm saying. That's um, exactly what I'm saying. Like, I don't think that that he has a problem necessarily with uh, total accuracy. Right. He does. I mean, La La Land is, in a lot of ways, the way it was shot, it really resembles the movie that he did talk about, Rebel Without a Cause, which used on-location shooting done up to look like kind of musical scenes, like scenes well, they, that are in they, a set, they in were, a studio. They're referring to that movie a lot when in that uh, movie. Of course, anyway, yes. Yeah. And um, he doesn't, uh, dis, uh, he, he, he likes Rebel Without a Cause. He points it out as an interesting example of being able to create a space for like a teenager space who are allowed to be their own type of people because they have cars. And he, he seems to admire things about Rebel Without a Cause in a way that um, is neat. And, and, uh, and the, the Rebel Without a Cause part is, uh, as the movie progresses, it's structured in, with three main chapters, with the first one being city as background, city as character, and city as subject. And I think he gets kind of more partisan as he goes through each chunk. But th- there's like curious ways in which the city is used as background, particularly in cinema's furthest past, more distant past. And then city as character um, is this, you know, the city being like a part of the story. Uh, like I think the Angel's Flight example is a good one that he talks about in the city's character. And then the, the big one, he starts out city as subject, which is the third chapter is uh, he talks about Chinatown. He then talks about uh, Blade Runner in depth. And then he talks about um, L.A. Confidential. And then he talks about some other movies and he gets to these black neorealism films. Uh, And a lot of them share the fact that they're made by outsiders. So this brings in your point or your uh, observation earlier about the high tourist, low tourist thing. I think it's less about accuracy a lot of the time and more about not even depicting it well because Chinatown doesn't depict LA in a fully loving way. It's a very grim depiction of like society right, and, and right. stuff like but that. But it doesn't but, necessarily need to take place in Los Angeles. I mean, because it's historical fiction, it does, but I feel like it could take place. Uh, it well, could, it I think part of the story, the central is right? the water duck thing. I mean, that's yeah. something that's very, uh, I think he values that some of those, some of the movies he holds up as city as subject, just like give Los Angeles a lot of space to subject in the sense that they have a lot of complexity and three dimensionality. Sure, yeah, yeah. um, In a way that's like he really admires that half of uh, 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 Chinatown 
depicts Jack Nicholson without a car Don't. and it shows you how hard it is to get around right, and like sure. he's really emasculated as a character again, not this, having a car. Again, this was made in 2003, very different now with Uber and Lyft. I mean, of course. It's it's That's actually true. I have friends who don't have cars and find Indeed. it easier to get around because that, they have Uber and Lyft now, which is This movie is very much of its time. That's it, without it, a which doubt. Which is really a game changer. I mean, it's still hammers in the point it, it's necessary to ha- be use a car though it's necessary to use a car yes um but he he in this los angeles subject i think it's that section where he talks about uh cops like the portrayal of cops in los angeles which is in, in los angeles movies and television happens a lot and they're often corrupt you know he brings up these these films like chinatown or or um he didn't bring up some films that I would talk about, like uh, Colors or, or things like that. Or not that they're, they're corrupt, or actually, but that there's, there's an evil to these cops. There's an evil to Los Angeles cops. And um, well, I think, I mean, maybe cops would contend, though, that it's not fair portrayal of all cops, though, too. You know, I mean, it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's hard not, to, but there, in the movies, like though, it's hard. You can't represent ever, the whole of Los Angeles in one movie, or you can't represent, or you can, but it's, it's an undertaking. Well, um, this movie envelops hundreds of movies. It that, doesn't yeah, try I to know, do this that. does. And yeah. what I'm saying is... In a fictional movie. He's using specific examples of, of movies that are trying to represent this one city, and it's very hard to do that, to represent a whole city in just one movie, with any city, you know what I mean? Like, with any I, movie. I think, you know, Woody Allen... Uh, he did that that movie Midnight in Paris and I was living in Paris at the time and I know a lot of Parisians didn't like it because it was not accurately portraying Paris he was just going into the touristy parts that were really nice looking and everything like that San Francisco even uh, and in in, in, uh, Blue Jasmine which is where you know the, the Woody Allen film Blue Jasmine takes place in San Francisco and it's so funny because the low the working class uh, characters in that movie for some reason have New York accents and <laughs> they don't talk like that in San Francisco, you know, like it, it that I actually had a problem with the accuracy. We're talking about accuracy. I had a problem with that because it wasn't just geographic accuracy. It was like portraying people incorrectly, like as if working class people had a specific East coast accent in, in San Francisco for some reason that was like way off. I thought. Right, know. but even... It, it really seemed like it was an outsider's right, but idea. Th- just, but at the same time... But it doesn't time, matter. You know, as, as I said, it's a movie, though. It's going to be hard to portray... I mean, in that case, it's it just, a little just, bit of a specific but situation. But then why but make it take gonna place be hard in San Francisco? To portray, you know? It's going to be hard to portray a, a, the likeness of a city... I mean, when you go visit a city, you're not going to go see every single part of the city. You know, it's, it's hard... Well, anyway, yeah, no, that's a that's a really good observation. So I think, and, and it's yeah, interesting ahead. that this I mean, it's there are a few movies that try as hard as this one to circumvent that problem by bringing in as so many other people's movies, so many other people's depictions. Do sure. you feel like it's circumvented? Some of the complications you're talking. Do you feel like it brought a fuller picture of well, of LA ness? It's interesting. Um, he he ended on by you know, form the form itself. I'm curious what you guys thought of the form of this documentary that's composed of clips. Um, let me first answer that first question. That cool. you, part A of that question. Uh, he ended on like black neorealism, I guess that you know, and their portrayal. It's portrayal of Los Angeles. Um, why do you? I mean, my question is why do you think he ended on that? 
particular those particular films? Well, I think that he, I mean, so one of the points he built up to, particularly through the third segment, the city as subject part, which starts out with Chinatown made by this, uh, made by Roman, you know, made by Roman Polanski. He, he develops the argument that LA is best appreciated by outsiders, which is how he comes up with this high tourist, low tourist idea. Right. And he, because he thinks that Hollywood, who are the insiders within Los Angeles, are kind of instrumenting, instrumentalizing L.A. And, and kind of disregarding its integrity. And so he thinks that uh, he posits that perhaps outsiders have a better perspective to really appreciate uh, certain val- you know, aspects, valuable aspects of the city. And, I, and um, it's not only black Damien film- Chazelle's not from Los Angeles. Indeed. And it's not only black film. It's not black. The black filmmakers that he points out are particularly Southern Southern people from the South, black, sure, black no, Southerners. Yes, yes, yes. And so, um, and so he really, I think the outsider status of, of them being a marginalized, you know, racial group, uh, them being not from LA. Um, he talks a bit about LA as developing a post-war middle class that was particularly racially exclusionary. And so black migrants, to LA have a particularly vibrant outsider perspective from which to, and, and, and he also talks about the Watts riots, which were a very big deal in the sixties. And he, he refers to the Chinatown of Chinatown where he says like, you know, the, the social dislocation implied with like, you can't expect morality, Jake, it's Chinatown or whatever. Um, he also talks about the Zoot Suit riots, actually. He does, in the and 40s. those are both very important. Um, yeah, that's and, right. And he shows the clip from the movie American Me, which is yep. essentially a movie about the start of uh, Mexican gangs mm-hmm. in, in, in East LA, and, and which really actually started in the prison system. And yeah, um, I thought he hung a lot on that. What did you think of that? Um, remind me more of what he talked about with that. I, I'm actually kind of. I think the movie depicts. Chicano identity as um, taking a more like kind of toxic masculine turn as a repo- as a re- response um, to this traumatizing incident of the Zoot Suit riots. Sure, yeah, I've known a couple of people who were in in gangs in East LA. I mean, and it's it's interesting. You said toxic, the word toxic, because the, the movie American Me kind of really shows how toxic it is. I mean. Those Zoot Suit riots, so the, the guy who kind of was the, the godfather, so to speak, of, of these Mexican gangs, his father was involved in the Zoot Suit riots in, in this movie, American Me. And by the end of the film, the guy, that guy in the, from the Zoot Suit riots was an old man. And you see, it, it shows a shot of his, his hand, and it shows the three dots symbolizing that he had become a part of this gang you know structure that that his son had had formed because he had to to survive in that in that context in in the city of Los Angeles or in East LA. Yeah, I think the and observation he was making was particularly the way in which a social group created some kind of social formation in response to being targeted by the racial majority. Right, that, almost that like I, they had to. Yeah, like, but he does in this city as subject final third of the movie go into a lot. He goes into the Watts riots. He goes into the Zoot Suit riots and he talk. And I think to go back to your question a minute ago, Max, about why he would end with these neorealist mm-hmm. filmmakers. 
is I think that it um, brings together a lot of the, I mean, he's clearly got, uh, I think what you would call a left-leaning sort of social history vision of, of like something cinema ought to honor often. Um, and so represent it, you know, cause he talks a lot about movies kind of expunging Los Angeles of, of like regular people and stuff. Right. He does, uh, he does. I think this is a quote that he says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he says when it comes down to it, you know, the problems of the, the working class black man are just like the problems of any other working class people. He, he says exactly that. And I think, I don't necessarily, I mean, I can't totally agree with that. I mean, they have a lot, I mean, that's hard, hard to stomach that because they have, the fact that they're black is a big problem for them. Uh, that's right, and that's a great, that's a great counterpoint. That's an, that's an excellent observation. I think the, the point he was trying to drive home in that moment and that this is I understand, right but end, it's, it's, it's about job especially security. The fact that, the Max, fact Max, that he's wait. Ending, okay. I know, I'm just saying the fact that he's ending the film with yeah. that I think is important. Anyway, go right. Ahead. Well, and I think if he made the film today, he probably wouldn't have ended the film on a note that does risk eclipsing like a black experience of social marginalization and and uh, and you know blackness being like uh, you know a real liability with regard to policing and you know at whatever but access to credit also, markets, whatever. It seems like he's disregarding also like he was saying it's not the violence and and the drugs that are in these areas too and. But that is a real part of these areas as well. That, yeah, you know, I think I mean, he was trying to extricate a I, I class argument that's still very resonant in contemporary politics. Sure. You know, how much, you know, people on the left argue, like, right. should we be talking about race? Should we just be talking about class? And, like, are these, you know, these aren't inextricable, but, like, we want to talk about one more than the other maybe. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I think he was trying to, you know, extricate a class orientate a class mode of, uh, of analysis um, in, in how he, uh, in, in talking about like the depiction of people who are, you know, who have sure. job insecurity. I get that. I think the way I get that, but it was, it it's was a great it, observation. It's, it's especially resonant. Yeah. The fact that it's the last thing he's going to end with. I, like, I, the last thing he's gonna say, I think you know? it seems a little incomplete, complete the way he ended the film. Actually. Sure. I, I actually sure. would have preferred him to bring things into a more of a, well-rounded conclusion, I guess. You know, I mean, uh, I think actually a perfect clip that he could have shown was the final scene from The Player, the movie The Player, which he does show clips from earlier on in the film. Um, how does that movie end? I forget. I like that movie it, a lot, but I forget how it ends. It's, it's, it would be the perfect clip to show for this documentary because um, The Player ends with right. a perfect, happy ending of a Hollywood film, and it's it's not the way things should happen, but, or in real life, but because the player is, is kind of, it's a meta film in that way. It's, 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 uh, calling attention to itself by saying the whole movie, it, it kind of gets into some underbelly of, of Los Angeles, but the, the movie ends the way the Hollywood producer wants it to end with a happy ending. And I think that's the way he should have ended this documentary because in a way, he would be calling attention more to the idea that, oh, I'm not going to end it the way... I'm going to end it in a way where even my own documentary is calling attention to the fact that I'm going to be influenced by Hollywood 
too, you know? And that would kind of sum up his whole movie in in one clip, I think. That would have been cool. But, you know, it's not... If that makes any sense, what I just said. No, I think that makes sense. I think I think it's a good point that one, one could imagine this movie ending a number of different ways that might be more satisfying. I will say, I, I mentioned earlier to you guys before we started recording that today, we watched this movie three days ago, and then today... In anticipation of this recording, I reread the script of the movie, which you can just look up and they bracket off the dialogue that is in in the movie clips. Uh, and, and so separate from that are, are his narrative overlay chunks of text. And so I really just read that. And so it was a pretty quick read. And um, it... It remind it really drove home how much we you know we I started talking about this in relationship to the form of you know stage and how space and time are built into this form that you can't escape and cinema break you know liberates you from that and it's uh, reading the narrative voiceover really drives home how dependent this film is on its very idiosyncratic form and I really admire the form of just having a thousand movie clips, I think it makes it hard to have a nice punctuation at the end, or for that matter, a viable, like, not viable, but like a a straightforward argument throughout. It's interesting to read it because it coheres a little, it hangs together a little better as like one solid argument. And I feel like I have an understanding of it as an argument better than just watching it. But the experience of watching it when you fall into all of these clips is really remarkable. And I, I think really is the reason to love this movie, even if it doesn't have as solid an argument as you might want or as satisfying an, I'm an ending as you might want. I'm surprised about some of the movies he overlooked that are are very much Los Angeles movies. Sure. I mean, he didn't really talk about any Tarantino movies, which was kind of interesting. Um, he didn't but, talk about really John he, Singleton. He didn't at all, too. talk about John that Singleton. That was interesting. And that's like very, Boys, in the, Boys in the Hood would have been when he talks about the Watts riots and things like that. I think it would have been a perfect segue to talk about Boys in the Hood or, or something to that degree. He talks about Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, sorry, not Rodney. I'm so sorry. He talks about Rodney King. <laughs> Um, he doesn't talk about Rodney Dangerfield either. He doesn't get any respect. He talks, about, he talks about Rodney King. He could have easily showed um, a movie, a clips of a movie like Boys in the Hood to show uh, a more realist uh, uh, approach to representing parts of Los Angeles that are underprivileged or, or things like that. You know what I mean? That's, it goes in line with what I was saying before, you know, uh, how he ended the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I agree. I think those, that's a really good point. That's interesting. Um, but you know, at the same time, it, he does cover up a lot, cover a lot of movies. I mean, it's this you know, it's a hard movie, it's a hard documentary to undertake. You know, I mean, it's like there's so many clips that he shows. I will say he does repeats repeat clips from certain movies many times over yeah. in the movie. Like he spends a lot of time with Chinatown, yeah, LA, LA Confidential. Confidential. He spends a lot of time with To Live and Die in LA, that's which is very interesting because that's not a highly lauded film or anything You're right. like that. Um, it, it's it's <coughs> peculiar that he spends so, so much time. I actually like, there's a, a song featured in that movie that's a good song. I've not Wang, seen the Wang movie. Chung, uh, Wang Chung. What's that? I've not seen the movie. Uh, I've only seen clips of the movie. Um, I just want to say, I think the, again, you're saying that it's, it's you can't really pinpoint down really one argument because he seems to, to draw on both sides of the arguments actually a lot too. I think what makes it seem like that he is arguing one point is kind of his tone a little bit, just in the narrator's tone, rather. Um, it seems as though it's coming from a sort of... Uh, 
he's not overly emph- emphatic in the way he says things, but it has a certain tinge of like I'm arguing a point in every time he's the narrator speaking that it seems like that there's one argument as opposed to someone that's being really open-minded in 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 their scope I guess of Los of the Los Angeles depiction in in movies I guess it the just in the tone of voice you know that to me it sounded like he was always arguing a point that's why I kind of it seems like that there would be one point in it. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, he brings up so many clips, and with every one, he does make a point. I think it would have been hard with this form not to have had a forceful, opinionated narrative overlay because the form is so inchoate, and you're showing this and then that and then this. If he also had a narrative overlay that was like things might mean this or things might mean that, if he had a more kind of wishy-washy thesis. Uh, he, he, I think that forceful, I argued a minute ago that he did not have a strong thesis, but I agree that he had an opinionated, forceful voice throughout the thing. And I think that was necessary to hold it together uh-huh. as kind of a custodian or like a, a guide through this whole thing. Right, right. But then you, it makes it susceptible to, well, you're right. I guess so. Uh, Do you like the film? It's interesting. It's hard for me to like hold it up in the same way, in the same light as I do normally with watching films because I don't really consider it... It's almost like... Oftentimes with documentary filmmaking, I, I, I have this, my own personal trouble with it, is that it's informing me of something that's interesting to me, but as a film, as a cinematic event, I don't really care that much about it. If we know, could have just regard, as easily guess. had somebody speak live to us and show these clips... Um, show the clips you know it could have been a professor talking to us and show the clips so as a film i mean obviously he's constructing these clips together to kind of cohere to his own ideas but it's yeah as as max is saying it's it's interesting to view this as in the same light as you would another kind of film you know or any most films actually right right So, so to say that i like it or dislike it is not the right question to find to to ask if I found it interesting or uh, valuable. Yeah, I agree. I do think so. I think yeah, I I hear what you mean, and it, it is almost like a professor lulling you into a state of just like consuming ideas in a way that I find very appealing. I find it different than a lot of documentary films that I watch where I learn an interesting thing, but I'm not it particularly is, is interested because, in sure. like the narrative. Um, the like the film itself like I, I didn't need to see this I just liked the information this felt much more to me like uh, this this movie feels and I like this movie a lot I'll say it's right. it's a uh, yeah it's one of my favorite movies I've seen it many times I like it a lot I, f- I feel like it it uh, is very radical in its form obviously and um, it is it is almost like a professor it's like you know a thoughtful person just like linking ideas together in a way that leaves me with a strong sense of of like what I think place means, the relationship between cinema and the things represented in cinema in a very profound way, and and many other questions that follow f- from stuff like that. But uh, I but do like it's, though, it's though, interesting. I, I like how well curated the clips were. I mean, like sure. it, it, it's not like as you were saying, it's not like I could just Wikipedia something and not watch this movie. It really does take right. watching the movie to understand the filmmaker's opinions, yeah. but also to, 
I'm not going to go ahead and, and gather all these clips myself together. I mean, it's, it's awesome that somebody did that for us, you know? And in right. that way, I agree. And in that, in that way in particular, it really is like uh, an entry into another person's mind and thinking and another person's history of viewing cinema in a way that seems extremely intimate and very valuable to me. Right. I mean, like you and I, Kevin, just recently watched the Fred Rogers documentary and for the most part, I, I think we both agree that we could have just learned about this on our own. Uh, we didn't necessarily need this film to learn more about Fred Rogers. We could have watched all these clips on YouTube. It, it, and by and large, I did. I had watched all those clips before I saw this movie, that documentary. I saw them on YouTube more in depth, actually. And mm-hmm. so you could actually learn just as much by reading a Wikipedia. Watching article, Mr. Rogers. Wa- yeah, watching yeah. Mr. Rogers. But with this documentary, Los Angeles, I mean, not to say it was a completely bad documentary because it wasn't, it, you know, there's some enjoyable aspects about it and, you know, there's some tearjerker moments. But he's talking about the Fred Rogers. He's talking about the Fred right. Rogers documentary. But what separates this Los Angeles plays itself from most other documentaries is that it took a specific mind, the filmmaker's mind, to be able to put together this montage in this specific way to present his ideas. His, his ideas and and you can't just do that on your own. And I like that. I think that's cool. Yeah. As I just said before. Right. I and I guess it, it is different than doc. I, I, it's kind of weird to call it a documentary. It's not really a documentary actually, because it's just providing his opinions on things actually, as opposed to, I've heard it called a film essay. Yeah. It's like a film yeah, essay. Yeah, it's way. like a film essay, which uh, is, it, you're set, you're right. It's kind of innovative in, in its. Uh, not to say that documentaries don't have an agendas. They form, mostly of often do, they do. Actually, yes. uh, they do. Well, I mean, that's his opening observation of the movie is that documentaries are often admired for their narrative features. Why can't we like analyze narrative films for their documentarian aspects? Or something sure. Like well, that. documentary also should be documenting some. I mean, I guess this is documenting something. So it well, is it's kind documenting. Of documentary. But Los Angeles I, you always, in I always kind of have yeah. the idea that documentary is do- documenting something in real life, but this is <laughs> this is different because it's documenting fiction, you know, exactly, which is yeah. which is different from most documentaries. Which then that's another cool aspect about it. Um, so in that I, sense, there's, 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 I do I do like it. I guess. Yeah, I do. I do. Like <laughs> and it. talking about it, and I talking do about like it. Okay. So I enjoyed it. It's so. fun to. You know, in conclusion, because we should wrap this up. Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I uh, I like that city a lot. And I did mention before how our childhood was more or less like somebody, anybody else, any other latchkey kid. But that is incorrect, Max. Very much so. Los Angeles is way more diverse than the Midwest, sure. or just the middle of the country. <laughs> you're um, the one who you're you're the one who brought that. Point I know, up. and also. The fact that film and television were around us probably subconsciously affected us to a greater degree. I mean, it, it definitely affected our sense of humor and um, our personalities in general. The, the fact that we, we had that, the Sunset Five available to us and I saw sure. Ghost World or, you know... Is that a cinema? I don't or know what that se- is. Or Sexy yeah, Beast. It's, yeah. it's, it, was, it was a cinema it, it was a for cinema independent art, films. Independent films. That's that was Ghost five, World. Cool. five minutes away from That's where cool we movie. lived. I saw Ghost World when I was, what, 13 years old. Um, but 
that movie's not available in any city, you know, especially when it comes out. It's only available in Los Angeles and New York, True. maybe San Francisco. I guess so, it is it is uh culturally so enriching to be it's in culturally a big enriching city. to it but it depends on what kind of culture you're trying to go for. For me, it is very was very culturally enriching to grow up in Los Angeles. Um probably would have been to to grow up in New York City. Um so I liked it a lot and I do like how this film has made me think about how how I, I like how Los Angeles plays itself has made me think about how it, it's making me play my own life in my head and how growing up in Los Angeles uh, has affected my childhood more so than if I grew up in another part of the country. And that's a cool thing. Yeah, I agree. That uh, is cool. But it would be an interesting sequel for him to do New York Plays Itself, actually, because that, and that is one aspect I... Oh, I, okay. Is this, this is your final word? This is my this final word. I just want to say, uh, yeah, I enjoyed growing up in Los Angeles, even if uh, part of why Los Angeles is the way it is is influenced by the media in like a simulacra, simulacra Would we even be way. having this conversation right now even though Kevin actually grew up in Minnesota, so it's a little different, but I do... Do you feel like growing up... I'm sorry, I, I gotta ask this. Do you feel like growing up in Minnesota, do you feel like you had to strive to find... It was a little bit kind of harder. Stuff? Was it harder to find... I, I hate to use the term culturally significant, but uh, in terms of film and television and even music, was it harder to find that kind of stuff where you grew up? Um. So, you know, I, I obviously can't speak to harder or easier not having had someone else's experience, but it, I do think that um, I had a, uh, ha- I have a lot of memories of the process of trying to figure out what I, you know, what was interesting and what I liked and what was enriching and, in, you know, intellectually rich and, and all that. I have two older sisters and they played a huge role in that. Um, and I also think that one of the things I, th- one of the ways in which I personally identify with this movie so much is that I really do see his argument as being one of a sense of being split internally in how he feels about his um, own identity vis-a-vis the place he is from and how he sees it in some ways as celebrated and in other ways as corrupted and he uh, has this identification and alienation that he go that he's bopping between that he really struggles with. And as and uh, you know, I, I am from Minnesota. I live in New York now, and and I uh, I also identify with a lot of sort of internal conflict vis-a-vis place and and how place makes a person and how a person derives identity from the place they're from, the place right. they grow up, the place their personal history has. Mm-hmm. has you know memories on the ground in the soil with and uh and so that that kind of conflict and uncertainty arounding personal identity and place really means a lot to me interesting i i just wanted to bring up the point that i think it would be cool to have a sequel new york plays itself and part of the re- i think i'm personally bothered by the fact that people have preconceived notions due to their watching the media, Los Angeles through media, and they have preconceived notions of Los Angeles in a bad light often. For some reason, uh, people think poorly on, on Los Angeles. In fact, there's a, there's a common uh, conflict between 
Northern California and Southern California that Southern Californians have no idea about is the joke that San Franciscans hate, uh, that they're at battle with each other. San Franciscans and Los Angelinos and Los Angeles don't even know it, actually, or something like that. And it's like, why are they hating on it so much? And yet they, we never get the hate on New York as much. And though that has been represented in movies countless times and in television countless times, and also it's been oftentimes these things are shot in Los Angeles and they're still representing New York. And uh, in fact, much more than Los Angeles being a set, the setting of the movie, New York is always the place that people go to. And so uh, why isn't that hated on as much? Woody Allen often romanticizes uh, Manhattan, in Manhattan, for instance. And he doesn't, it, to me, that's not totally an accurate portrayal of New York, but is that wrong? And why are we hating, why don't we hate on New York as much as Los Angeles? Is part of it because Los Angeles, a big part of it is because of Hollywood? I mean, that is a big thing. It exists in Los Angeles, but, but the industry does exist in New York as well. And I people's mean, preconceived notions of Los Angeles even after they've spent time or a little bit of time in Los Angeles, it's infected by it's, that first I, those idea, first ideas that they saw. And so they're going to hate it no matter what, be, or not hate it, but they're going to like it less no matter what because they're letting their preconceived notions influence their ideas while they're while they're there. Right, and I think it's also perhaps their milieu. You know, I mean, I think. People I know that are European often, they actually love Los Angeles. Um, the I, movie makes that point. Yeah, uh, people I've met... Right, it does I, make that point. People I met so when I was in France... This, yeah, people I met in France, I, I, I said they went to Los Angeles, they went to San Francisco, they went to New York, they're like, I, we loved Los Angeles. And I was like, really? That goes against what other people think I mean, of when they just have... Because it's the most different Los Angeles city. on the first visit. And I think that's really cool to me, you know? And I think... Uh, maybe it's just a big part of uh, our culture, actually, hating on Los American, American culture, hating on Los Angeles. I think that's. I think the movie makes that point too. I think that's absolutely. And right. I do, and I it, and there is no real merit to that. I think. So the final word is whether or not you like Los Angeles. If you haven't been there, highly recommend going there. Rent a car, get around, and spend a significant amount of time there. And. Don't let any preconceived notions get in the way of your, your final judgments. Um, rather, embrace the city for all that it has to offer, including the film and television industry. It's a cool, unique city right, for that right. reason alone. It, uh, yeah. It's also the second largest city in the country. It is a, yeah, an enormous wealth of all matter of cultural diversity beyond the film and television landscape. And this movie, uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself, um, had a lot of legal trouble, obviously, because it is composed entirely of clips. You can watch it on YouTube. I would recommend you watch it. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really great time. Thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Splitting Hairs with Max and Nikki. Tune in next time. <laughs>